Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we are in week two. Last week when we cut off the podcast, Dennis and Chris told me that there is so much more that they wanted to say and that they wanted to do a part two of the first episode. So that's what we did. We ended up continuing that conversation. If you haven't listened to episode one, I highly recommend it just to give you some context. So without further ado, episode two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Well, it turns out last last week we didn't have uh, enough time to continue talking about the liturgy. But should we start with his story, uh, or is that does that come up later? Yeah, I told him about your story with the uh, foam noses when you're teaching the mm. seminarians and yeah. clown liturgy. So I was told this yeah. is a good story. Yeah, why? You know, we've we've heard about clown liturgies from the '70s or whatever, and they sort of strike us as absurd. But some people just say, "Oh, well, it's fun. I've never seen it before." What's your take on the clown mass? Yeah, well. My take isn't so important uh, as, uh, I guess, what I consider the church's take, and this is what I try to convey, at least in the classes. And is we there were, an official church teaching on clown mass? Uh, actually, sort of. Okay. Well, but there is an official church teaching on the liturgy. That's the, that's mm-hmm. the primary thing. And, uh, so I was teaching a, a class here at the seminary on um, uh, the essence of the liturgy, basically. And uh, we were speaking, like we were last week, about how... Uh, sometimes it's hard to see what the essence of the liturgy is, and we brought up uh, clown masses. I'd never witnessed a clown mass, but the uh, Bishop's Committee on the Liturgy newsletter back in the middle 80s, I think it was, had to print a clarification that clowns, while they do many good things in society and culture, had... Uh, <laughs> I already love the language of that statement. Uh, Not that right. there's anything wrong with Visiting that. the sick, entertaining children, whatever it might be. The clown, as such, should not be considered as a liturgical minister. That's almost a direct quote. The clown, as such, is not a liturgical minister. And I uh, offered this to the class that, you know, that at the point that you think putting on red floppy shoes and a, and a red nose and a rainbow wig is uh, appropriate for the liturgy, that maybe you're not seeing what really the essence of the liturgy is. Uh, for whatever reason. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody's intentions. Yeah, especially or... the, the deacon. He stole the show. <laughs> so the, uh, when I came back, the next uh, stole. Oh, stole. Oh, you guys are just oh, getting yeah, that now? Sorry. We're liturgy people. We don't understand liturgy. <laughs> we don't have words. senses of humor, yeah. Jesse. Oh, man. So Get when some. I came back uh, next week, uh, one of the students called me out of class. Mr. Carstens, could, uh, could I have a word with you? And he said something very serious about an assignment or a grade or something like that. And when I came back into the room, there were 50 guys with red foam clown noses uh, uh, all staring back at me. So uh, that's, uh, yeah, uh, the, the, clown, uh, the clown mask clarification and the, and the red clown noses is uh, one of my favorite memories. But see, that's where the law, you, you, the church can't write to forbid every single possible abuse, right? Uh, as, as Chris here told me, the church's law is uh, prescriptive, not proscriptive. So it tells you what to do. It doesn't tell you what you Will can't do. Will a doctor do. ever give me a proscription? Well, they could. Here's the fundamental principle where you start, is that there's a pre-existing reality called the liturgy. And it's in heaven. 
and it's the worship of the angels and saints and the Trinity praising each other. And our job is to encounter that. And so if you wanted to encounter something uh, fully, you have to represent it in a full way. If you obscure that uh, presentation, then you can't really encounter it properly. So I want to encounter my wife. Well, I'll just put her behind a brick wall and just hope I can see her. It doesn't work that way. Or if your wife dresses Isn't up. Isn't that an Edward Allan Poe short story where you put somebody behind a brick wall? You mean Edgar Allan Poe? Ed, yeah. Ed, what did I say, you Edward? Said Edward Allen. Oh, I don't man. know what you said. Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> That's right. But you have he does wanna, put her behind a brick wall. <laughs> but you want to experience. It's pretty hard to perceive somebody behind a brick mm-hmm. wall. Or if you want to know what something is and then you dress them up to look like somebody else and then people feel fooled. So the idea is we, we encounter heavenly things by encountering them on earth. You know, unless you're a mystic and you're carried off to visions of heaven, which is pretty rare, you have to encounter heavenly things on earth. And if you don't make them according to their heavenly prototype, then you're not encountering them. You're not being changed by them. If your violin teacher says, well, don't do it that way, you know, use a, a stick from a tree outside instead of using the bow, you're not going to play the violin very well. You say, well, it restricts my freedom. Well, of course it does. But excellence always restricts your freedom because you can't do unexcellent things if you want to be excellent. You can't do unheavenly things if you want to become heavenly. Hmm. Now, what is, but what does the catechism say about liturgy? What is, what is, uh, you know, when we, when we want to talk about, you know, basically I want to find a little bit more about what, what liturgy is. We, we talked a little bit about this last week, but we have, we didn't actually really, uh, get to where we wanted to. We had short in time. Uh, but what, yeah, what does the, what does the church say? What is it? Yeah. Well, the, the catechism treats uh, the subject of liturgy and sacraments in its uh, second part. Um, and right at the very beginning, it offers a, a definition of the liturgy where it says that the liturgy is the participation of the people of God in the work of God. The liturgy is the participation of the people of God in the work of God. And right before it does that, it, it's kind of in for uh, or its entry for explaining the liturgy. Is it gives us this etymology of the word liturgy, liturgos. And it's made up of a couple of smaller Greek words, you know, the New Testament, uh, the Gospels written, written in, uh, in Greek, and so you know, Alexander leaves uh, the, Greek, the Greek culture, and so it's a Greek cultural word, and it's made up of two little words, uh, laos, which is where we get the word uh, laity, means people, basically, and uh, ergon, I think, or ergia, I'm not sure what the, what the form is, which means work. So you may have a, uh, an ergonomic work device to your keyboard or your mouse ball. An ergonomic work device? That would yeah. be like a work work device. Something like, well, so you don't, so you don't <laughs> hurt work yourself. Device, a work device that works. <laughs> That's what we need these right. days, don't we? So you don't hurt yourself uh, when you're doing your ergon. So you get the lumbar support, whatever these things might be. Mm-hmm. And so a laos uh, ergon is uh, a work, that's do- a work, an ergon, that's done on behalf of the people. And they say that in the, in the ancient Greek culture, where this came from, uh, anybody who did uh, a service or work, an ergon, on behalf of the polis or the people, the laos, was called a liturgist. So a teacher was a liturgist because he or she performs a task on behalf of the people, or a garbage collector was a liturgist, or a soldier was a liturgist. Anybody who does something like that on behalf of the people was called a liturgist. Well, in uh, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, it call, I think this is chapter 8-ish, uh, th- th- I think it's, it calls Jesus the liturgist. And so the question, well, why is Jesus called the liturgist? Well, if, uh, if we understand what the definition of a laos ergon is, it's someone who performs a work on behalf of the people. And this is exactly what 
Jesus did in taking on our first parents uh, forfeited the the work that they were supposed to do in praising God and sanctifying uh, themselves and all the creation. So that's the work he took on and does for our behalf. And the liturgy that we celebrate is this work of Jesus made present to us. But if we go back to your analogy, if, if you put that work behind the wall and you don't see it, then it's then you're going to wear clown noses. Uh, so uh, the liturgy is the participation of us, the laos, in the Aragon of God. I've always heard it called the work of the people. Well, that's... Where, where, does, that, where does that come it's from? It's a popular but uh, misinformed translation that was pretty common 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, well, the, uh, I, I know very little. I studied Latin once, and this is what the, the, the genitive, I think. The genitive can ha- mean a couple of things, right? So you can say, for example, it, when you say of, it can mean a few things. You could say, um, for example, that's uh, uh, Archbishop Supich's picture, picture okay, that we have hanging in the, in, the, uh, in the seminary. And that can mean a couple of things. One, it can mean he owns it because he's the, the owner, in a sense, of the property in the Archdiocese of Chicago. But it can also mean that actually inside that frame is the... the, a, the a picture of him. Uh, of him, right. And so when we say that the, the liturgy is uh, you know, the, the people's work, what we mean is not in the sense that they own it. Jesus is the, the owner of the work. He's the, uh, he's the principal worker but rather it means the people are the subject of it. it. It's done for them. And so to say that the liturgy is the people's work means that it's the work that Jesus is doing for us and incorporating uh, us in. That's right. And here's the really exciting thing about Christianity that separates it out from every other religion. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger talked about this in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He said in, in most you know, tribal religions, primitive religions, you have a priest who's designated to go put stuff on the altar and offer it to the God. And then they sort of hope they don't get consumed, you know, when the God comes and takes it, and then they run away. And the people just give stuff to the priest to go do. The different thing about Christianity is Christ is the priest. So he's the one offering himself. He's the one offering us to the Father. That priest is represented sacramentally in earthly reality by the human priest. And the people in the pews are the members of that body. So the priest is the head. The people in the pews are the members. So head and members together are acting as Christ and offering the sacrifice of Christ to God the Father for their own glorification. So it is their work, in a sense, that they are, as members of the Christ body, doing the work. But when you say it's the work of the people, then people sort of forget the head. Imagine, like, you know, bodies running around without their heads. The arms would flail and eventually mm-hmm. just fall over dead. It'd be like St. Dennis. Well, good old St. Dennis said, he, you know, he got his head cut off, and then he carried his head back to uh, Paris and, and laid down and died. But even St. Ben- Dennis ran out of steam without his head. Mm-hmm. And so a parish people in the pews without the leadership of Christ as the head will eventually kind of fizzle out. And so head and members together, priest and people together, because they have a priesthood of the baptized, uh, the, the members do that work. They offer themselves. And then the headship is indicated by the ordained ministry, and they offer themselves and the people's prayers as well. And so it is the work of the people and the priest together. But all of that is just the sacrament of it being Christ's work at the right hand of God in heaven. Okay, so so now so now we got that straight. Where do we go from there? Now that we know, you know, Christ's uh, role in all of this, and we know our role in all of this, where can we then go in terms of understanding liturgy? Hmm. Well, I don't think we're ready to go anywhere just yet. There's Uh-oh. more. There's oh, more that needs man. to be said about uh, well, how did how did he do his work? 
with a clown nose. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I mean, was he the was it, was he the proverbial nice guy? Is it, I mean, was that the essence of of his work? And maybe after that, well, to what end? What was the purpose of his work? You know, if we don't know those things, we can't cooperate in those, right? If you don't know the purpose of, uh, say, uh, a baseball game, you can't be a, a, a successful member of the team if you don't know what its what its goals are, what its and purpose is. And you'll never is. know what the infield fly rule is. Well, that, that's part of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we need to know a, a little bit more about this Aragon of Jesus if we want to be co-workers or co-laborers or co-operators in this work. And so that, that remains, I think, part of the, the, the central uh, message. So, so what, is, what is the work of Jesus? You know, what does it consist in? What the Catechism will go on to tell us, uh, you know, after the, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, is it consists in uh, the Paschal Mystery. Okay? The, Jesus did a number of things. It will say that Jesus carried out his work in three principal ways, as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. So this is kind of... The yeah, we, jo- hear, we hear that at baptism, right? We do, right. After, uh, you know, after your, your kids are uh, baptized, uh, there's this post-baptismal anointing that says, just as Jesus, I'm paraphrasing here, just as uh, I have had my kids baptized, but uh, I don't remember exactly that's what That's the PBO, is. the post-baptismal. No, PBA. PBA. Yeah, that's a different thing. Okay. That's, yeah. So it, uh, the, there's the anointing, and it says something like, as, as uh, Jesus was priest, prophet, and king, may you come to share in these offices. Mm-hmm. And really, th- this isn't a lot different from, you know, some of us might remember the answer to the question, uh, why did God make me? And it's to know, love, and serve him in this life and be happy with him. Oh, I'm so glad you answered that. I did not know. Don't mean to put you on the spot there, Jesse. (laughs) But uh, knowledge is the job of the prophet, and love is the job of the priest, and service is the job of the king. And so it's just another way of of expressing these three, what the church calls the munera Christi, the offices or works of Christ. And so these are the ways that Jesus performed this ergon in which we participate. But at the heart of these three, I don't think that, you know, and it's not that Jesus, you know, you know, put on one hat at one point and they said, okay, now I'm not going to be a prophet. I'm going to do the priest thing. I mean, they're all together. At the same. Trinity. Uh, well, th- that's got to be a topic for another, <laughs> another show. Um, but the, it's his priestly act, really on the cross that is the, the heart of his saving work. And what I think the letter to the Hebrews is speaking about when it says that Jesus is the liturgist. And this priestly act is the, the paschal mystery that the catechism speaks of. Right. Because what a priest does is offers a sacrifice on behalf of others. And in, in this case, Christ offered the sacrifice of himself. And there was no more perfect sacrifice than to offer God back to God, right? What most perfect animal could we offer that God needs? Nothing. God doesn't need anything. But the most well, perfect... if unicorns existed, probably that. Well, that'd be at the top of the hierarchy. <laughs> but even better than unicorns <laughs> would be Christ's own body. That's why he's the lamb of God. The lamb is slain and offered on his behalf. Mm-hmm. And so we can think, you know, I get, you know, I would say to Chris, well, this happened a long time ago. It was one singular event in history. What does that have to do with anything now? And sometimes people will say, well, I just say yes to Jesus as my Savior, and he's my personal Savior, and then I'm sort of in the club. But Catholic liturgy works differently because it takes that same reality and offers it uh, to us again and again. It's one action that goes on forever, and we kind of pull back the veil. I mean, think about your elementary school play, and you open the curtains, and there's a play going on. That play is going on eternally, liturgically, and we make it knowable through all these actions in the liturgy so that we can participate in that one offering of the Son to the Father. But the key word here is uh, participation, right? I heard uh, on, on a retreat once, I think, uh, that... 
and I suppose this is uh, true insofar as it goes, that in the liturgy, God the Father is the only spectator. That is to say, he's the only one who's watching. Everybody oh. else, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Blessed Virgin, angels, saints, martyrs, prophets, uh, bishop, priests, deacons, servers, lectors, people in the pew, ushers, everybody else is a worker. And so the, the play analogy or the sports analogy that we use is, uh, I mean, we're not spectators. So when the curtain opens, it's like we don't sit in our seats. We actually go and become part of that action that's taking place. Yeah. Imagine you made the, a movie about a play and the people in the pews would be actors. <laughs> they're the extras. They're well, part of like the show. It's like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Well, yeah, that's true. It's kind of like that. The sublime to the mundane. But who, this, knew, who knew that that <laughs> film had so much to do with liturgy? But this, uh, yeah. The, yeah, who knew? <laughs> Nobody probably. But th this work, right, that uh, Jesus does and that we join in is this priestly Paschal sacrifice that took place uh, uh, through the suffering, death, resurrection, uh, and ascension of Jesus. That's what the Paschal mystery is. And that's where he passes over. This is this bridge building project. This is the great bridge that the great bridge builder, the, the, the high pontifex, priest, pontifex. The, right, the Pontifex Maximus, through his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, bridges the divide between fallen earth and redeemed heaven. And uh, that's the primary work. And so again, we become co-workers and co-operators and co-laborers or collaborators in this work. Now, so, but if we don't know what that work is, how can you join in it? Okay. So this, this is one of the things that the, the catechism uh, lays out for us, is tries to put a very fine point on what is the ergon that Jesus does for us, the laos. But I think the other thing that I mentioned before is, well, to what end? You know, each of us uh, you know, in, our, in, our, in our home lives, daily lives, work lives, whatever it is, presumably we act for a particular goal or purpose. Uh, what is the purpose of Jesus' saving work? And what... Uh, it's a harder one than you might think to nail. But the purpose of Jesus' work is God's glory and our sanctification. God's glory and our sanctification. And the reason and the way that's done is through sacrifice. Sacrifice sounds awfully mean. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I hear, I hear that a lot. Uh, uh, the priest is going to sacrifice mass. Or, the, you know, uh, in the mass they say, my sacrifice and yours. Uh, th that always is hard for me to understand because I don't feel like... If he said, my sacrifice and yours, I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything. And I, and I understand the altar and, and all of that, but what, I mean, that's something that's been hard for me to understand. Right. Well, we're offering the Father the sacrifice of the Son. And in and, and definition, a sacrifice is a surrender, a giving over of something, and in a certain way it's destroyed, but then it comes back to you better than it was given. So you have bread and wine. Mm -hmm. You give away the bread and the wine on the altar, but you get it back as the body and blood of Christ. It's not bread anymore. So the bread is gone. It's destroyed. But what you get back is heavenly bread, which is even better. It's a pretty good investment. I'd say, right? And so, you know, you give uh, yourself on the altar. What do you lose? Your old sinful fallen self. What do you get back? Your glorified self. So Pope Pius XII, right before Vatican II, said active participation is offering yourself as a victim with the priest on the altar, which sounds awfully morbid, right? Nobody, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody thinks that. But if you want to be better, you have to get rid of the old self and get the new one. And the way you do that is by surrendering yourself. So there's this you know, line in the first Eucharistic prayer. It says, may your, all, may your angel take this to your altar in heaven. And it's called ascending. And so the angel will come down, bring the bread to the altar in heaven, where God would transform it, then it would come back as the Eucharist. 
And so if you put yourself on the patent... You're need messenger angels for that. Well, that's a bit... <laughs> messen, angel means messenger. That's exactly right. And so if you put yourself on the patent spiritually, you sacrifice yourself because of Christ's sacrifice, which is the true sacrifice because you're one with him as a member of the mystical body, then you get yourself back. But, you know, if you sit there and just sort of twiddle your thumbs or think about, you know, what you're going to do after Mass or you don't know that you should be offering yourself as a victim, then you don't get yourself sacrificed and you don't get yourself back glorified. Cardinal Ratzinger speaks about this same kind of conundrum and misunderstanding and confusion about uh, what a sacrifice is. This is uh, pretty early on in his book, uh, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He says something like, uh, uh, the concept of sacrifice has been buried beneath the countless debris of misunderstanding. The common view, which people misunderstand, is it has to do something with destruction. Um, you know, the, the losing out. Yeah, a okay? loss of something. Yeah. Right, right. And, you know, he goes on to say this is a misunderstanding. It's not entirely wrong. I mean, sacrifice can be painful, and it can involve destruction, and it can be uh, something that we wish to avoid. But what, if it's only that, that's the misunderstanding. There's something deeper in the sacrifice that makes it pleasing to God, and that is, and Dennis uh, uh, talked about this a moment ago, it's this connection between heaven and earth. It's union. And so what Cardinal Ratzinger does is he cites, uh, I think it's St. Augustine's The City of God, that says true sacrifice is anything that brings us into union with God. It's becoming united with Christ. It's becoming divine with Christ. It's becoming joined with Christ to the Father. That's what takes place in the sacrifice. So again, a sacrifice. You know, when God the Father, I hope this is accurate. When God the Father, we'll see. I, mean, yeah, I feel we'll like we're going to say that a lot at this point. Yeah. You teach at a seminary, right? So, okay, let's go. Let's see what you can say. I'll about let God you the guys Father. talk yeah. more because I don't want to be heretical. So. Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, try harder. Okay. Uh, I th I think uh, this is maybe an application of what uh, Cardinal Ratzinger is saying. Is you know when God the Father witnesses Jesus upon the cross, what is it about that that pleases Him? that satisfies him, that opens the gates to heaven, that reconnects heaven and earth. I think what the cardinal is saying is it's not because, oh, mankind is uh, torturing and murdering my son. Now I'm pleased. You know, now I'm satisfied. It's rather that in the person of his son, who's become one of us, is this complete union of wills and this loving heart back to God. That's what he finds so... <laughs> Again, it's hard to think what God the Father would be thinking, but that's what, what uh, it's, it's finally, here's someone who is thirsty for me once again, and that's what pleases him. And perfectly so. Perfectly, yes. Um, there's, uh, I think this is in part four of the Catechism on, on prayer, that, uh, again, maybe it's St. Augustine, maybe it's St. Therese, that God thirsts for us so that we might thirst for him. God thirsts for us so that we might thirst for him. Well, our first parents tried to slake their thirst on other things besides God. And they uh, found that they, they were not, uh, excuse me, were not, uh, they, they couldn't be satisfied. Um, what, and so, Dennis, you've talked about the, the great figure of, as the deer yearns for running streams, so my soul thirsts for you. This is a great figure of the liturgical movement as uh, becoming thirsty for God once again. And what Jesus, of course, says from the cross is... I thirst. Yeah, I thirst. He thirsts... I oh. knew that one. Yes. yes. Good job, Jesse. <laughs> Mother Teresa's proud. Okay, but answer this one. When he says, uh -oh. I thirst, uh, on whose behalf is he speaking? God's or man's? Man's. Right, you're half right. 
and God. That's right. Oh, that's right. He is the man God. I should have just said man. yes. So yeah, that's right. That's right. So he's on behalf of God, which he happens to be. He's saying, "I thirst for you." On behalf of man, which he happens to be, he says, "I thirst entirely for you." Perfectly. Perfectly. So he's the perfect conduit. Right. Right. That's what a priest is—the perfect bridge builder, the perfect uh, a median uh, uh, mediator between earth and heaven. Yeah, not a median. That's what I ran over with my car the other day. <laughs> So uh, this is what happens at Mass, is this uh, reunification of heaven and earth, the bridge that opens up between heaven and earth uh, on the altar. And uh, you know, as Dennis was saying before, when you, when you receive communion then, this again is a great uh, Augustine insight, you know, he says when you eat, most food you eat, it turns into you. Right, so the lunch you had a while you are ago what you eat. is now coming is now well, it's changing <laughs> I, into you, coming into your uh, cholesterol and your arteries and whatnot. But Augustine imagines Jesus saying to him, "I'm not like normal food, which changes into you. When you eat the Eucharistic food, you change into me." This is that unity, that divinization, that theosis, this uh, being united in love with Jesus and God the Father. Uh, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Did you have anything to add to that, Dennis? Yeah, because we're talking about these high, high ideas and sacrifice and all that. You say, what does this have to do with Sunday Mass? Well, one of the church documents says, Christ chose to institute the memorial of his life, death, and resurrection in the form of a sacrificial meal. You say, what, is, what does bread have to do with the sacrifice of Calvary? He said, he chose to put it in the form of a meal. Because the Passover meal, you know, was a remembrance and a celebration that, but he told the Israelites, you know, do this, put the blood on the doorpost, and I won't destroy you. You will be, this destroyer will pass over you, and you will be kept safe. So at the larger question, we have, well, we deserve separation from God by the fall, but that destruction is passed over us because Christ uh, is the new um, savior, savior, the new rescuer. And this meal, this sacrificial meal, is the, is the fulfillment of Judaism in that sense. And it also anticipates the heavenly feast that will come in the future. And so all of these things land right at the center of the Eucharistic prayer, right there in the Mass. Excellent. That's great. Uh, that's about all the time we have for, for this week. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for your contribution. Uh, I think it's time to, uh, to answer an email. Right? Let's do it. Mail call! Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Uh, so this question comes from a Father Sean. And the, his question is, when the veneration of the cross takes place, should the cross have a corpus? What mm-hmm. do you guys say? I think the answer is that the church has not definitively said one way or the other. This is what I think the, I mean, the options seem to be this. Uh, On the one hand, the veneration of the cross began with the actual veneration of the actual wood of the actual cross, the true cross. Which had no corpus. Which had no corpus, which had no corpus. But, um, you know, different places all wanted a little relic or a piece of that cross, but that was just not possible. And so other crosses would be used uh, in place of the true cross. Okay. Uh, we notice some parts of the, the text, too. I mean, when, when the priest shows the cross, he says, behold the wood of the cross. So that speaks of the wood. And he goes on to say, on which hung, but is not currently hanging, the Savior of the world. Come, let us adore. Another point that might uh, support the uh, uh, cross without the corpus 
is um, in uh, Latin, there's no, there's, there aren't two words, one for cross and one for crucifix, right? So th- there's, no, there's no way to say crucifix in Latin. This is at least what my Latin-speaking uh, friends suggest. And so what uh, the way, at least in the, in the documents, that the church uses to say crucifix is cross with a figure of Christ crucified upon it. I know it's a mouthful, but that when the church means crucifix, so for example, when they talk about an altar cross or a or a cross in the sanctuary, it's it's That's, spoken. They always make that distinction, right? They say a cross with a figure of Christ crucified upon it. Okay, she doesn't say that in this instance on Good Friday. So there's some arguments that uh, seem to suggest that it would be uh, a bare cross. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know. The veneration is often could be of the cross, but uh, and maybe this maybe this is a weak argument. But I have uh, I don't think I have ever venerated anything in my uh, life except for a crucifix. So my uh, tradition, I guess, a very short tradition, has always been for the veneration of a crucifix. And I did look up uh, just recently too. I was finding pictures of uh, uh, the Good Friday celebration uh, by the Holy Father. Right? What did the Holy Father use? A cross without a corpus or a crucifix? What do you think? Oh, man. Um, I guess just by judging, judging by your tone, without. No, no. He used a with, crucifix. Well, okay, with, yeah, he uses a crucifix. So, like I said, uh, what is the right answer? Uh, if one had to choose, I think the, the greatest evidence, the greatest weight, the better argument is for a, uh, a bare cross. But the church isn't clear. And if she really uh, were staying awake at night, uh, wanting us to, worrying that we were using one or the other improperly, she would make crystal clear just what that should be. But couldn't you argue that the tradition comes from venerating the relics of the cross? And so we're talking about the wood of the cross, and that's primarily what's venerated. And if, there's, if the corpus is on it, there's nothing wrong with that. But you're not really, it's not veneration of the corpus, it's veneration of the cross. Yeah, well, again, it, uh, you could, but it... it um, It'll add to the argument, but doesn't give a clear answer. Uh, you know, again, the rubric will say the priest uh, unveils the right arm of the cross or of the crucifix uh, or of the corpus. I still think the the, the weight of the of the argument is for a, uh, a bare cross, but that's uh, that doesn't at least seem to be in my limited experience what uh, how that's generally interpreted. Now I'm just going to add one one more thing to this. Um, does it say anything about what the cross should look like because I I've, yes. been, I've been to yes. uh, a Good Friday um, uh, service and it was just like uh, two logs no. basically tied together no what it does say it should be uh, both sizable and beautiful so it's not meant to be two by fours nailed together or logs uh, tied together it's supposed to be beautiful this uh, either from the Roman Missal or there's a letter called uh, Pascale Solemnitatis on the preparation and celebration of the Easter feast it's a letter from uh, 1988, I think, from uh, the Holy See, which gives uh, instruction. So these would be the sources of uh, the answer to this question. But after weighing it all, if there's a clear answer, I'm not sure what it is. And I'm not a liturgy expert, but that might speak to the use of a bare cross, because finding a sizable crucifix might be pretty hard to do. Yeah, possibly. And even, you know, uh, this is a related, this is like a bonus uh, answer. Mm-hmm. Bonus answer. <laughs> we'll see. Is that for the veneration of the cross, only one cross is to be used, yeah, I've seen not that. three. I've seen that yeah, well. it, it had been the case where 
uh, in the Diocese of the United States, more than one cross could have been used. But now, after the third edition of the Roman Missal, it's only to be one. And that would speak to the size uh, of the cross uh, as well, that the whole body uh, could see it. Uh, it will say if there's too many people for the veneration, the, the priest would hold up the cross for all to see, kind of after the fashion of Moses elevating the bronze serpent uh, in the desert. So people would look upon it and uh, become healed, become uh, forgiven. So again, in the end, uh, it's not a crystal clear answer, but uh, history suggests uh, crucifix. The, I think the, the, the rubrics at least suggest a bare cross. All right, well, I probably that doesn't satisfy everybody's <laughs> uh, query, but if you want to submit a question to the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Uh, I can't promise we get it on, on the podcast, but uh, keep listening to see if it's submitted. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.